Great. Thank you, Pastor Pete. All right. Uh, so we're in the Psalms this summer. Um, and again, we started, uh, we're going to be preaching from the Psalms this all summer. And if you were with us last week, uh, I mentioned that it was a collection of 150 ancient Hebrew poems, prayers, and praises from all different periods in Israel's history. Um, almost half of them written by King David. And, uh, and, and so... They were arranged to be, to be this main songbook that the, uh, for public worship uh, for, of God in ancient Israel and in the early Christian church. So, you know, whenever they got together to worship, they're like, all right, let's, let's pick a song today. Let's see. You know, they didn't go online or, you know, you know check out, you know, Eleva Elevation and Hillsong. And all that. They, they went straight to the word, psalm. All right, today we'll sing, you know, and they picked a song. And uh, that's how they, uh, that was the songbook for the early church. Um, Tim Keller, a uh, pastor, describes the Psalms like this. Every situation in life is represented in the book of Psalms. Psalms anticipate and train you for every possible spiritual, social, and emotional condition that we could ever go through. They show you what the dangers are, what you should keep in mind, what your attitude should be, how to talk to God about it, and how to get from, get from God the help that you need. And as we go through the Psalms, see how you can... Place your experience into the psalm and understand and wrestle through your experiences as you can relate uh, to, the, to it. In light of who God is and what he, who he's described to be. Keller continues to say, every feature and circumstance of life, he quotes, transmitted into the Lord's presence and put into the context of what is true about him. Every feature and circumstance of life is transmitted into the Lord's presence and put into the context of what is true about him. And he says, Psalms is a medicine chest for the heart and the best possible guide for practical living. And so last week, we, we learned about how to get through our discouragement, right? How to uh, find healing and hope and encouragement in times of sadness and sorrow, depression, hardships. Uh, this week... Uh, well, I want to look at how can we get through our guilt, feelings of guilt. Um, and, and we want to bring up, again, these psalms bring up these emotions because being Christian doesn't mean that you never, that you're always, you know, happy-go-lucky, everything's great, everything's fine. Being a Christian isn't that all your, your problems go away, uh, that you won't ever get discouraged. Nor does it mean that you won't ever sin and feel crushed and guilty and miserable about it. And so as we gather each Sunday um, bring your hardships, bring your experiences, because um, this is not the place where we cover ourselves up to look good and wear our masks. We can come in our brokenness, and what makes us Christian is how we think, feel, and struggle through these feelings like discouragement and guilt in light of our faith in Jesus. That is what the Psalms point us to. And so we hope and pray that our uh, summer in the Psalms awakens and expresses and shapes our thinking and feeling through our struggles and emotions. So we are going to go into Psalm 51 and to see how we can wrestle through and get through the guilt and the shame that we so often feel because of our sin and failure. So uh, Psalm 51. Be gracious. Oh, actually, you know what? Let me read the headline. For the choir director... A Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. 
And that's going to be important later on. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the, guilt, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, and a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices. In burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then, your, then young bulls will be offered on your altar. So what's uh, interesting about this psalm is that it tells us when and why it was written. The heading says, for the choir director, this is a psalm of David, written by David, King David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Ooh. Uh, sketchy. Who's Bathsheba? Uh, and we, we learn about this story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And I'm just going to read verse 1 through 5 to kind of give us the context of when and why this was written. Written after, it says, this event and after Nathan approached him and confronted him of his sin. After he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 5. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam? the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her, and when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. All right, so scandal, right? It's like, it's like a movie here. Uh, so first, what we notice is that David did not go out to battle at the times kings were supposed to go out in the springtime, when kings go out to battle. There was this ongoing war, right, with, uh, um, as we read, the sons of Ammon and, and, and Rabbah. And so he did not go out. He's supposed to be advancing God's kingdom, battling, you know, the enemy as the king. But he's not where he's supposed to be. And he's not doing what he's called to do. And those are oftentimes ingredients for falling into sin, not being where he's supposed to be, doing what he's, not doing what he's supposed to be doing, having too much time on his hands. Everyone's out there giving their lives for the kingdom of God and battling, and he's 
at home. And uh, he sees a woman bathing, and he abuses his power to uh, have sex with another man's wife. And so the second thing we notice is, is that is, is, is this abuse of power, right? He's just, you know, lounging around on his rooftop, not in battle while everyone is you know, giving their lives for the kingdom of God. And he's just lounging around and lo and behold, and uh, he, he abuses his power and calls her in and, um, and he lays with her. And this is not just any man, right? Because... David sent out and inquired about the woman, asking about the woman, and, once, and, and someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And why is that important? Because David knows who he is. Uriah is one of his generals. He's his close friend. And he, in fact, he's one of David's 37 mighty men, is what we learn, learn elsewhere in, in this book. He's one of David's mighty men, mighty men who would die for him, who'd give their life for him. He said, they're loyal to him. And here he is, taking the, uh, uh, the wife of his beloved general Uriah. Third thing we notice is that he tries to cover up his sin by, uh, he's like, oh my gosh, you know, what have I done? He's trying to cover it up. He calls Uriah back home from the battlefield. To, and he says, you know, you, you must be tired. You know, thank, you've been working hard and battling. Go, hey, why don't you sleep at your house, you know? And, and uh, sleep with your wife, you know. It's been a hard-fought battle. And, and he makes it seem, wants to make it seem like Uriah came home, laid with his wife, and that the baby is from them and not him. <laughs> and so Uriah was, a, but Uriah was a noble guy. And he was like, David, I can't do that while, while my men are out there, you know, sacrificing their lives. And here I'm, I'm gonna, you're asking me to sleep in the comfort of my own home. And as a noble guy, he did not do that. And he slept at the door of David's house among the servants of King David. So that didn't work. So what does he do next? Next thing we notice is that, so he's like, all right, I'm going to put, I'm going to send Uriah back, put him in the front lines of the battle where the battle is the fiercest so that he could be killed. So that his death will be sure and certain. And so he sends Uriah back out and sure enough, Uriah dies. And David commits murder because his intent was to have him killed then David marries Bathsheba to make it seem like you know after they got married that it was a legitimate child and so after this crazy drama the end of chapter 11 says the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of Yahweh and so God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David of his sin and he tells a parable. There's a rich man. David, David, listen to the story. There's a rich man and there's a poor man. And the rich man had many flocks and herds. The poor man had one little lamb which he bought with the very little he had. And he raised it alongside his children. He raised it like his own daughter, it says. This little cute lamb. And I, I kind of relate. We, I, I've raised puppies before. You know, they're, they're cute. You, you know, you treat them as family, things like that. But so this guy is raising a little lamb. You know, as one of his own daughters, and then says, A traveler came to visit the rich man, and he was unwilling, the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own lamb, you know, uh, to prepare for his guest for, for a huge feast. So, what did, he, what did he do? He took the poor man's one little lamb, slaughtered it, prepared it for his guest. And so, 
David hears the story and he's burning with anger. He's like, this man deserves to die. And he must pay back the poor man fourfold for not having any compassion and just his crazy sin of just taking this poor man's one little lamb when he's a rich guy with all these flocks and herds. And so David's so angry and upset. And then Nathan goes, David, you are the man. You are that man. You despise the word of Yahweh by doing evil in his sight. And David's just like crushed, you know, crushed by his guilt. And that's why this psalm says, after Nathan, you know, spoke to David about his sin, he wrote this psalm that we read, Psalm 51. And so David's crushed. David responds, I have sinned against Yahweh. Have you, have you been convicted of your sin in such a way? Like, man, I deserve to die. I am guilty. Are you, maybe some of us come here today, we're discouraged by failures and, and guilt and shame about something you've done in the past and you've hidden it away and it's just crushing you. Maybe you're thinking these thoughts continually come to your mind. I'm no good. I'm damaged goods. I've committed a great sin. God can never love me. People can never know about my past of who I am and, and what all my secrets are because they'll hate me. And we see that David felt this way. It said that for about a year, he hid his sin until he was confronted. And we see the, 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 the emotion and the things that David goes through as he's wrestling through this guilt of this crime, of these crimes plural, that he's committed. And so I want us to see how David wrestles through his guilt. And so and encourage us how we can get through our guilt because, you know, sure enough, every one of us have secrets. Every one of us uh, have done things that we're ashamed of and not proud of. So how do we get through that? Do we continue to bury it deep down or can we confront it, take it head on, and uh, this psalm, I hope, would encourage us how to wrestle through our guilt. Um, so five things I want to point out. Cry out for grace. As you can see, confess your sin. Ask for cleansing. Commit to being changed. And celebrate what truly satisfies. And so we're going to see uh, how that breaks down. So first, cry out for grace. Be gracious to me. Oh God, according to your hesed, according to your loving kindness, your loyal love, your devoted love, out of your faithful love, be gracious to me, oh God. And he's crying out for mercy. When we're guilty of sin, we see it as a bad thing. Oh, I need to just suppress it. Just forget about it. Maybe it'll go away. We're ashamed and we know we've done wrong, but it's actually a blessing when we're guilty of sin. When you have a fever in your body, it's telling you that, hey, there's something wrong. You have an infection or a virus and, and your body's fighting it. Something's up. And so because of that fever, you know, 
uh, it's this warning sign that our bodies give out. And so we get treatment. We rest. We take vitamins. We take aspirin. We do all these things. Take antibiotics because we want to get that infection, that whatever it is, out of our bodies because our bodies are fighting it with this fever. And that's the symptom, the fever, right? Likewise, when we experience guilt, your soul is saying there's something wrong. It's fighting. Your, your soul is fighting, and so you need to address it because there's something wrong. Don't bury it down, but bring it out before God. And so how? The first thing, cry out for grace. Cry out for mercy. Cry out to the great doctor, God, whose cure for our guilt and shame is that he's rich in mercy. His medicine is love and compassion. Would you not cry out for a God who wants to give that to you, who wants to heal you, who wants to forgive you? So cry out to the only one who can get rid of that guilt. Know that you need his abundant grace. You need his undeserved, unearned favor because we don't deserve it. In fact, we deserve death and we can't earn our way back. It just doesn't go away. No matter how good we try to live after that. We need his grace, and he wants to give it. That is who he is. He's a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, rich in love. And so David continues crying out, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin according to your great compassion. That's what grace does. It blots out our sin. It treats us as if you've done nothing wrong. And even more than that, it treats you as if you've done everything right. That is grace. And in 2 Samuel 12, 13, after Nathan confronts David, the prophet says, you know what, David? Yahweh has taken away your sin. Another better translation is that Yahweh has passed over, has put away your sin and you shall not die. How can God just pass over and put away David's sin? David just committed adultery, betrayal, deceit, murder, despising God, scorning God, doing evil against his God. According to the law, David deserves death. Where's the justice in that? Where's the penalty? And are we not in the same boat? Did not Jesus say, whoever even lustfully looks at a woman is guilty of adultery? Whoever hates someone has committed murder in his heart? Jesus is pointing to our hearts. We've committed, we're just as guilty in committing murder and adultery in our hearts. Why aren't we just struck dead right now? Because... We have a God of great mercy and compassion. And David can cry out for grace because he knows for it to be true. It's not a blind cry. And we, on the other side of the cross, now looking back at what Jesus done, David had to look forward to it. We, with the better view of the cross, of the grace of God, can now look on the cross and see that God poured out his wrath on Jesus for our sins. He did bring punishment. He did bring his wrath and his anger and death that we deserved. 
but not on us, on his own son, Jesus. In Romans 3, it says, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. The one who exhausted the wrath of God. That's what that word means, that he exhausted the wrath of God. That every ounce of his wrath against all sin has been poured out completely and satisfactorily onto Jesus. It was complete. It was done. It was finished. God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood, by his death. This was to show God's righteousness. There's the justice on the cross because you and I deserve to have been there. There's our justice. Because in his divine forbearance, it says in verse 26, in his divine forbearance, in his patience, he had passed over that word that Samuel uses, that Nathan uses. God has passed over your sin. Because he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God poured his full wrath against his son, showing his justice that we deserve. But it also shows the mercy and the grace for sinners like you and me. Cry out for that grace. Look to the cross where you know that that grace is there because he died for us, gave his life for us. The next thing is confess your sin. Confess your sin. David says in verse 3, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Confess your sin. Admit and agree that we have sinned and call it what it really is. We have to face our sin for what it really is. Let's not just pray, oh, God, I'm sorry for all the wrong things I've done. No, but confess it. What is this sin? We have to go deeper in our confession so we, so we can see the, the evil in it and then so we can then receive the grace. I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. So he's saying the track keeps on playing. I, it can't stop. I'm continually knowing that I'm guilty based on my record alone. I need a new record because this won't stop playing. My guiltiness, it won't stop. And so and then in verse 4, he says, my sin is against God. God, only, only against you and you alone have I sinned and done evil in your sight. We have to recognize that our sin is against God. Our sin is against God. It's not just a wrong action. It's against someone. Not that he didn't sin against Uriah and Bathsheba. He did. But what makes sin to be sin is that it is against God. It is an attack on God. It's a rebellion against God. It's treason. And the word transgression uh, refers to a crossing a, forbid a forbidden boundary with the understanding that it's rebellion. Exiting the place of God's kingdom and his reign and rule. Saying, God, I, I'll get, I'm going to get away from your rules and, and your laws. I'm going to live on my own, my own way. And that's transgression. Against you, God, have I sinned and done evil in your sight. And we have to recognize that sin is not just against God. It's not just rebellion against God. It's evil in his sight. And so that's why he says, you are right. You're blameless in your judgment. As a supreme judge, as God and creator of the world, he determines what is right and wrong. He alone is holy. And so he, as a holy God, does not sin and he doesn't accept sin. Our sins are indeed evil in his sight. He hates them. He cannot look at them. They're an offense to him and they must be punished. And so David is saying, if God casts me into hell, 
God would be innocent. He would be just. He would be blameless. Because of my evil in his sight. And he goes on to say, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. So sin is against God. Sin is evil in his sight. But sin is, is, is within us. We're born with a sinful nature. This iniquity word means to twist or be bent or a perversion, right? Altering something from its original course, uh, meaning or state, to a distortion or corruption of what was first intended. Something's distorted. Something's corrupt, not the way it's supposed to be. We're born with this sinful nature as David teaches us. In sin did my mother conceive me. I was brought forth in iniquity. So while transgression refers to our actions and our rebellion, iniquity is embedded in one's nature. If transgression is what we've done, then iniquity is who we are. It's the depravity of our nature, a state of being. And David says, this is, this is who I am. I'm, I'm born with this sinful nature. I'm born corrupt. And some people use this sinful nature to, 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 to justify their sin. Oh, yeah, I'm born that way. I can't help it. But David does the opposite. What he's saying is, by referring to his sinful nature, he's saying that the, the fact that he committed adultery and murder and, and lied, it is, it's an expression of something worse, that he is that way by nature. If God does not rescue me, I'll do even more evil. If God does not free me from this sinful nature and, 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 and uh, heal me, I'm capable of so much more. And so that's why he's confessing his sinful nature as well. Because because of Adam, we're born under the dominion and the power and the reign of sin. Sin's tyranny, as we're saying. Sin, we're born under sin's condemnation. We're, we're guilty from the moment of birth because of Adam's sin. And so we're born under the dominion and the power and the control of sin. And so David is saying, I need rescue. I've sinned against God. I've done what's evil in your sight. I'm born sinful nature. I need your rescue. Free me from this. As he confesses and cries out his sin. And then he goes on to say in verse 6, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. He's saying, God, you desire truth in the innermost being. You see the depths of my heart. You see the hidden parts, the secrets of my heart. And you see, and what you want is that my heart trusts in you, that I put my faith in you. You desire, you delight in truth. In other translation, it's faithfulness, trustworthiness. God sees the secret parts of our heart and what he really wants from us is not just right action. He sees and wants our hearts. He sees what your God truly is. What you really want that you think will give you significance and worth and a reason for living. God sees that and he sees that we've trusted in something else other than God to give us joy and significance and satisfaction. And so David is saying, you see that in my heart. And so I'm confessing that my heart was not there. I've betrayed you. I didn't just break your law. I, be, I broke your heart, God. Because when we just confess the action, it's easy to feel sorry because 
yeah, we failed, we messed up. We're disappointed in ourselves, we look bad. And often we can not even think about it in the context of our relationship with God. We just did something wrong and we feel bad about it. But what David is saying is, he's bringing it in the context of what God sees, that it's you against you, God, that I've sinned. We put our trust in something else other than God, above God, and we love something else more than God. We've made something else our God. And so David confesses that, that it's about the heart. You desire truth. You desire faithfulness in the innermost part of my heart. But God, I did not trust in you. I did not turn to you. I did not love you. So he cries out for grace. He confesses his sin. Third thing is that he asks for cleansing. Ask for cleansing. Verse 7 says, Purify me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. He's asking for cleansing. Hyssop was the branch used by the priest to sprinkle blood onto a house when it had a disease in it. They sprinkled blood and declared it clean. That was one of the, the ways they did that back in the day. And so David is crying out, purify me with, with hyssop. Sprinkle your blood over me and declare me clean. Count me as clean, God, from my sin. In the Old Testament laws, these statutes were, were regarding cleanliness were designed to allow a person access to God. If you were clean, you can be in the presence of God. If you were unclean, you could not. You would separate you from God until you're made clean, until you're declared clean. And so to be made clean, a purification offering was to be made. Blood had to be shed from an animal as a sacrifice to cover our sin. Which points toward the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus on the, cro on the cross whose blood washes over us and makes us clean, makes us white as snow, it says. Declare me to be clean, God, whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins. Cover your face so that you don't look at my sin. Hide your face from my sin, God. Don't look at it and count it against me. Blot out my transgressions. Erase them from the record book. To, you know, to encourage uh, safe driving here in our state of Texas, you know, we use a, a point system to uh, track uh, driver behavior, right? So points are assessed according to each traffic violation, right? As you, you're learning, who's getting your license? You're le learning on this, right? You get points for, for traffic violations. You get a ticket. And in Texas, the point system is called the Driver Responsibility Program. I looked this up. <laughs> for each violation you receive, points will be added to your driving record. And the accumulation of points can result in suspension or penalties surcharges and fines, right? So all tickets and their points are added to your record, which will stay on your record for three years from your conviction date. So for those three years, you have a tainted record and your insurance goes up, right? When you get pulled over again, they see it, that you're a bad driver. And so if you receive a traffic ticket for a moving violation, you may be able to have the charges dismissed. Did you know that? by attending a defensive driving course. And if you successfully complete it, you submit the certificate of completion, and guess what? Your charges are blotted out from your record. 
No, those points don't go on your record. Before God the judge, Jesus has submitted his perfect certificate of righteousness and exchanged it for our sinful record. It says, I'll take your record, I'll blot it out, and I'll be punished for it. You'll be clean. You'll be white as snow. I'm going to hide my face because it's not there anymore. But what I see is that certificate of righteousness, that perfect record of Jesus. And so based on that, we can ask for cleansing. We ask for forgiveness. We ask for our sins to be blotted out. That means no more hell, no more penalty, no more fines and surcharges and suspensions, no separation from God, no more guiltiness on you because your record is blotted out. So why do we ask if it's done, if it's been done on the cross? It's fitting to ask because Christ has purchased our forgiveness. He's paid the full price. It doesn't mean it replaces our asking. It's the basis for our asking. It's the reason we're confident that the answer will be yes when we come before God and say, wash me, blot out my sin. We ask so we can fall in love with Jesus again and again and again by experiencing his mercy and his grace. We ask so that we can remind ourselves of the truth that we have in Jesus. We repent and confess not to be forgiven and to earn his love, but to know that we are forgiven and loved. So in your guilt, ask for the cleansing because it has been done. The next thing is to commit to being changed. Commit to being changed. Paul says, create in me a clean heart, O God. The word create is the same word that we see when God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, miraculously, just by his word. And so God is saying, create, make a new heart for me because that's what I need. I need a brand new life, brand new heart because only God can do this. And that is exactly what is true in the gospel. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have new life. We have a new heart. In Romans 6, it says, we know our, our old self was crucified with him. We died with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we also believe that we will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We're alive to God. We have a new heart, new desires because of his resurrection. We're freed from the dominion and the power and the rule of sin's tyranny. We're free from the guilt. We're free from the condemnation, the, from the prison of sin. And we've been set free. We've been given a new life, a new heart. There was, there's once an eagle that acted like a chicken. It was captured when it was very, very young. And the farmer who 
caught the eagle, this baby eagle, put a restraint on it so it couldn't fly. So the eagle grew up learning, believing that he couldn't fly. And then he turned it loose to roam in the barnyard, in the farm. It wasn't long till the eagle began to act like the chickens, pecking and scratching at the ground. And this bird that is meant to soar high in the heavens seemed satisfied to live the barnyard life of the lowly hen. One day the farmer was visited by a shepherd who came down from the mountains where the eagles lived, where he could see the eagle soaring. Seeing the eagle acting like a chicken, the shepherd said to the farmer, What a shame to keep that bird hobbled here in your barnyard. Why don't you let it go? All right, seems like a good idea. The farmer agreed, so he cut off the restraint. But the eagle continued to wander around, scratching and pecking as before, even though he was free. The shepherd picked it up and set it on a high stone wall. And for the first time in months, the eagle saw the grand expanse of blue sky and the glowing sun. Then it spread its wings and with a leap soared off into a tremendous spiral flight up and up and up. At last, it was acting like an eagle again. In Christ, we're set free from the prison of sin. You're no longer enslaved by the power of sin. You're alive to God in Christ. And we can now soar as we were meant to soar. Because in Christ, that is who you are. That is who we were meant to be. And so often, we put ourselves back in the prison of sin, in the power of sin. We act like chickens. So David is asking God, create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. David is crying out and saying, I want to be who I'm meant to be. I don't want to live away from your presence. I don't want your anointing as king to be taken. I want to continue serving you and living for you. So God created me a clean heart and he's committing to being changed. He's remembering that this is true of him. Remember that we're free from the dominion and the power of sin. And we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is now living in us. His new life is now our new life. And the power of his resurrection is the same power of the Spirit that is now in you. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're free to live for and love the true God with new desires and a new heart. No longer bound to worship worthless idols and seek our significance and satisfaction in them. We can now worship the true king. How we were designed to be. We can now be satisfied in God. How it was meant to be. How he created us. And so the last thing I want to point out in conclusion is to celebrate what truly satisfies. Celebrate what truly satisfies. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with the willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. So we hear it again and again. David saying, give me the joy. Let me sing. Let me praise. Open my mouth that I may worship. This is, the, this is what he's asking for in his, the finality of the psalm. This conclusion of the psalm is that he wants to celebrate, he wants to worship what truly satisfies. Wouldn't you expect that at the very end David would say something like, God, I'm a perverted, you know, offender who committed this crazy crime, adultery. Sex with another man's wife. It's astonishing that he doesn't even mention that. And didn't it all start with this, this sin of adultery, to deceit, then to murder? Why isn't he crying out for, oh, help me, you know, not to, to would you suppress these desires? Or would you, would you help me to have, you know, good accountability? Uh, uh, would, you, would you help me to, to, to avoid these, this, this lust? That so tempts me. Lord, protect my eyes. You know, he doesn't pray those things. I'm not saying those things are bad, but he's saying that's not the answer. He's praying for joy. He's praying for worship. He's praying to be able to celebrate God. Why? Because he knows that sexual sin is just a symptom. It's not the disease. People give way to sexualism because they don't have the fullness of joy and gladness in Christ. There's something else that we crave. There's something else more than God that we want. So in this psalm, not a word about sex. Instead, we hear, let me hear joy and gladness. Let me uh, rejoice. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. May my tongue jo sing joyfully of your righteousness. Open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. What David is asking for is that he would have great joy in God. That that is the cure and the answer to all of our sexual sins, to all of our idolatry. The cure and the answer to defeat sin is to replace it with something better. He's saying, make my heart believe in all my sorrows. Jesus is better. In all my victories, more than any comfort, more than all riches, make my heart believe Make my mouth sing of your praises so that my true joy will be in you. And finally he says, true worship, the true praise is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise, verse 17. That is the heart that God wants. And he'll never turn away. A heart that is broken. A heart that admits our guilt. A heart that is poor in spirit. In constant need and dependence on him. A contrite heart. A crushed heart. A sorry heart. A regretful heart. That is a heart that he will never despise. And never reject. A humble heart saying, God, I need you. A heart that will continually, again and again and again, say, God, I need your grace. It's the posture of David's heart in this psalm. Forever being dependent on the grace of God. I need your grace daily. 
Because I can't change, I can't have joy, I can't be satisfied without it. And he will never reject your heart because his grace and love are eternal. He will never reject a broken and humble spirit. Going to God again and again after sin, after sin, after sin is what exalts and worships him. Because when we do that, he is magnified in our hearts. Not going to him and hiding from him is belittling him and saying that he's not enough. Brothers and sisters, in our times of great guilt and shame, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Receive his grace. He'll never reject you nor forsake you. And in fact, his grace is so great that he'll even use your failures. As we see in the story of David marrying Bathsheba in this sinful, awful marriage to Bathsheba, what we see in the lineage of Christ, in the lineage of David, is that Christ is to be born. The forever king, Jesus, is the result. Even in this sinful, ugly marriage, we see Jesus coming through the line of David as our forever king. God even using something so sinful, this utter failure, but God redeeming it and bringing about the greatest thing that ever can come forth, the Savior of the world. So I encourage you, go to God. His grace is bigger than we know, greater than we think. When you experience guilt, don't run from it. Cry out, confess, be cleansed, commit to being changed, and celebrate the beauty and the grace and the riches of Christ that is true for us. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for this psalm that leads us to wrestle with our emotions and, and particularly this feeling of guilt and shame that we so often have God. Let us run to you. Let us run to the great doctor who is rich in love, abounding in grace. And God, so that we may see the beauty again and again, the greatness of who you are again and again, so that even through our guilt, something great could happen. Our hearts are changed and we draw nearer to you and we come to know you more and more. So God, help us to be a people who cry out to face our guilt, to bring it before you and be healed and transformed and experience your freedom and your love. Pray all this in Jesus' name.